Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you joining the Toronto Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us where you can. Tell us what you'd like to hear more of, maybe even less of. Uh, We begin by talking about what happened at Remembrance Day in Ottawa. There was a lot of controversy. Then there was a lot less. But I still think a lesson to be learned here, and I'll lay that out in the moments to come. Speaking of the federal Liberal Party, Marcy Ian will join us, uh, MP for Toronto Centre. She won the election rather easily after a close by-election against Annamy Paul back in the fall of 2020 in the midst of a pandemic. Ryan Imgren, biostatistician on the show as well, and from the QP Observer, Sabrina Nanji. Lots coming up. Hope you can enjoy the festivities and have yourself a great weekend. We're back with a live show on Monday morning. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to make a prediction. And I, and I think you know that um, sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm just kind of right. There's only two kind of predictions I make. That's not true. But uh, but I did predict, I did predict that when they lifted the border requirement and opened it up again, that I said this won't be, you know, there are a lot of people speculating, well, I'm hearing it'll be on Thanksgiving week. No, no, it was two weeks earlier. I knew someone who knew someone who most importantly knew someone that we'd open the border earlier and it opened on Monday. I'm going to give you a prediction we dropped the PCR test requirement a week from Monday. That's I'm putting that out there right now. And that's not just from knowing someone who knows someone who most importantly knows someone in, uh, in upstate New York. Because now my source is kind of gone. My source was the American on the American side that they'd open the border to all of us. But now I don't have, I don't have anybody working the, uh, working the phones. I don't really have anybody working the phones in, uh, you know, in, in the, in the Teresa Tam, uh, you know, jurisdiction of things. She's the one along with the Canadian government that has to drop the, uh, and border security that has to drop the expectation and requirement of a PCR test on the way back. I'll tell you a really good test this weekend, a really good test this weekend for whether the, um, the borders people are doing the sort of day trip thing is the first Leafs game in Buffalo against the Sabres. So that's tomorrow night, as a matter of fact, Saturday evening. What could be better? What's better than Saturday evening in upstate New York? You already know not mu- in November, not much, okay? Um, not much. It's pretty heavenly. So, um, you know, Calgary here tonight for the Hall of Fame game, Toronto in Buffalo tomorrow. How many of those fans, how many Leafs fans will cross the border? You already know if you live in Burlington or you live – uh, you know, a- almost anywhere on the west side of Toronto that Buffalo, like for me uh, in Durham region, Buffalo feels like the end of the earth. But I like going. I do like going. And I like going to Sabres games. Um, I went to one at the odd way back when. And I've only been to a couple at uh, what's now HSBC. But I'm obsessed with going. P- like I, the first game I went to was probably a few months before COVID. And then I'm like, well, I got to do this four times a year. Sometimes there's a Sunday five o'clock game. Wait till after NFL season's over. Go see the Sabres. Great low price ticket. Beer is cheaper. I know it's American beer, but you can suck it up, people. Anyway, tomorrow night, Leafs at Sabres. Usually that's a huge ticket for Leafs fans to go over and go to Buffalo. We'll see if indeed it is tomorrow night. I think we'll have a good reaction to that on uh, on Monday morning. Let me start here. Yesterday being Remembrance Day and all. And you might have uh, seen that there was a smidge. Look, there's two elements to this particular controversy. Your, uh, we know that there's two minutes of silence at the top of the hour. 
on Remembrance Day at 11 o'clock. Did you know even McDonald's won't run drive through at, at that time? That the two-minute silence between 11 a.m. and 11.02 is meant to commemorate, you know, Remembrance Day. And they have it in, in, great, in the United Kingdom, okay, at 11 o'clock. Everything is meant to stop. I've even felt weird at the gym. Yeah, I've been like, I think a few years ago, I'm running on the treadmill on a Friday. I know it's Remembrance Day, but then I realize, you know what? Other people are starting to get off and, and their, their treadmill or machines or whatever, and they just stop and stand and they look at a television screen. And so you do that. That's what you do. You get, you observe. We ask for two minutes of silence. Stop with what you're doing each day. Reflect and remember our war dead. And it's always at 11 a.m. So. There's a lot of things that you uh, would want to be on time for in life, right? A job interview. Have you ever been late for a job interview or thought you would be? It's a really lousy feeling. You can imagine in doing what I do and being the kind of the first local voice in, you want to get there. It's not as big a deal if you are the nine o'clock host. I've been the nine o'clock host before, by the way, and been scrambling. And it's not a great feeling either to make somebody stay late. I've stayed late for people. People have stayed late for me. Your teammates, your good good teammates, good colleagues, you pick each other up. These things happen. But uh, there's there's elements in your personal life. You can't be late for showing up at a wedding. It almost happened to me once, and I will never forget how that felt, thinking, ceremonies here at 11 o'clock or ceremonies i think it was a three or four o'clock wedding and uh and it was getting really dicey and i think we might have been the last two people in my current wife uh not then my wife but my girlfriend at the time and this actually happened i think this wedding was right before uh 9-11 i think it was two weeks before so we got there in late august and just barely my own wedding um in 2004 Four people got there late. I wouldn't name them, okay? Uh, but when Meredith, Jason, uh, never mind. Um, when they showed up, my wife was just about to walk, to, my bride was just about to walk down the aisle with her father. And we heard like a scuffle at the back. And I'm like, what's going on? Is this like 16 candles? Has she passed out? Is she like, did she take too many muscle relaxants? No, four people are coming in. So it's a it's a lousy feeling, right? There's just there's late. Hey, I'm going to be five minutes late. Um, this happened yesterday with the prime minister and the governor general. And uh, you may have seen some of the reaction to it. It wasn't kind. It wasn't pretty. Now, remember, we have a segment of our population that will uh, pounce on Justin Trudeau if his socks are too brightly colored. They will. You know this and I know that this is this is like the United States with Barack Obama's tan suit. A lot of people on the uh, side of the uh, Republicans didn't like him wearing a tan. Who is this guy to wear a tan suit? The nerve. OK, well, yesterday, a little bit different, a little bit different. OK, and here's what what we saw. Now, I'm going to play you some of the audio and it's important to clarify this. The moment of silence has already begun. Trudeau just got there before 11. Like, I mean, like a minute and a half. He just got in under the wire. Who didn't get there on time is the new governor general, Mary Simon. Now, you might think, oh, come, like, it's not, it's not some slap in the face. She's not doing it on purpose. No, many people don't do anything on purpose. But there is a forum, um, a form rather, and an etiquette and an obligation to not be late. You're not meeting Bob from accounting for lunch, okay, at uh, at Applebee's, and you text him and you're like, I can't find a place to park. I'll be in another three minutes. 
That's not what this is. You got to treat it. The pro- you got to treat the professional sometimes like the personal. You can't be late when your wife's giving birth. In fact, picking her up to take her to the hospital is one of the most stressful things imaginable. I've done it twice, and you try not to be late. You try not to be late for a wedding. You try not to be late for to visit somebody in the hospital after a surgery. Whatever it is, treat the professional like the personal. And here's some of the here's what you'll hear. You'll hear silence, and I'll try and be silent during it, but I understand that it's already happened. It's supposed to be two minutes. But then Mary Simon's, um, you know, deluxe car pulls up. Now they're all riding in, in nice black cars. Okay, whatever. Uh, Mary Simon gets out of the car during the moment of silence, and she is announced as having arrived. It was really sloppy. I'm not going to, you know, crush the person doing the announcing. I'm not even going to crush Mary Simon, all told. But I'm just going to tell you it was clunky. It was awkward. It wasn't great. And it opened, you open the door up for the wolves. You open the door up for people who criticize you already. Here's how it sounded. The announcement's really, really bad. Like, I'm telling you, this is piercing. You, you're silent. You're thinking. You're reflecting on the war dead. There's, a, there's guns about to be fired off in their honor. Okay, we got cannons, we got guns, we got it all. This is not meant to happen this way. Here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, arriving now is Her Excellency, the Right Honorable Mary May Simon, Governor General of Canada. Mesdames et Messieurs, Son Excellence, la très honorable Mary May Simon, Gouverneur General du Canada. Okay, you hear what that's like. I'm going to tell you, not great. Like, I don't like that one bit, and, and a lot of people didn't either. There has to be a better way to do it. There has, to, there has to be a level of communication knowing that because they're late, Trudeau's late, she's really late, that you don't announce her, okay? This is a, this is a minor issue, okay? The world isn't ending as a result. Don't get me wrong, but it speaks to... The environment we live in, and it speaks to the criticism and the the lack of currency in the bank that Justin Trudeau has with some people. Listen, if you're going to say, come on, not a big deal. Okay, let's play that game. Doug Ford's late. Doug Ford is late for a Remembrance Day ceremony. Hops out of the car. They announce him there during the two minutes of silence. Are you digging in on him? Well, then be an equal opportunity digger and say, that's clunky. It's awkward. It's not great. Okay. The prime minister also is under attack by some for uh, doing selfies at the cenotaph later on in the morning. He did several photos with people uh, and now they are on people's Instagram accounts. I don't know how I feel about that, but I don't have the same reaction to arriving mere minutes before 11 a.m. I don't consider it disrespectful. I just consider it sloppy. Okay. It's a beautiful ceremony. The participants are, are meant to be well organized. And yeah, Trudeau gets a lot, but, but so does Doug Ford. It's a lot of hatred and bile and personal stuff that's just really, really lousy. Really, really lousy. I'm not outraged by it, but do better. Make sure you don't put yourself in that position where, where one of the most massive things imaginable is going to be scrutinized by people. And when you go to Tofino a month earlier, you've lost a little bit of that wiggle room to say, well, you know, stuff happens, if you will. You've lost a little bit of that wiggle room to point that out. 
See, I love that topic about uh, teachers and streaming. And I said it, it's polarizing. People have different opinions on it. By the way, my parents talked me out of being a teacher because um, they wanted me to go into a safer career path like the media. Thanks a lot. But honestly, no, they did talk me out of being a teacher because they both taught. Natalie writes to me. She writes as a dedicated listener, but also a great teacher. I think she meant grade eight teacher, but I read it as great. And I'm sure she is a great teacher. I've never felt the need to turn your show off until today. I guess that's a good sign. There's been hundreds of shows, and this was the moment. The convo restreaming is one where language matters. Saying higher, lower, and smarter to describe students is problematic and why de-streaming is essential. There's more to it than that. I understand language matters. I'm, I, I'm, I'm using language right now, three and a half hours a day, but um, you give higher and lower grades and you encourage those students getting lower grades to do better um, and, and prep them for high school. And I thank you for, in essence, that. And then I read this from a grade nine teacher. As a high school teacher, I'm getting ready for grade nine de-streamed English next year. No idea what it'll look like. This year, I have a grade nine locally developed English with kids with no initiative who struggle to read and write simple sentences. Then I have a grade nine academic English with students writing full essays, literary analyses, reading novels, plays, and poetry. How will these students be in the same class? I guess I'll find out. Exactly. It's not the... It is not the easiest topic, and we all want high school to be. Look, look how what high school's been become in the last eighteen months. It's problematic. This would be a great, great topic, and I would get off the treadmill. The, the social was always on when I was at the gym, and I'd I'd turn off the Duran Duran. I'm like, what are they saying about streaming? Um, a former host of the social, and she is now, of course, uh, MP in Toronto Center, and now the Minister for Women, Gender Equity, and, and Gender Equality, and Youth joins me now. She is Marcy Ian. It is a pleasure to have you on the program. Um, I would step off on my treadmill on a regular basis to hear your opinions. I miss your opinions on TV, but you're in a great spot now. Thanks for joining me. Greg, it's a pleasure to be with you and it warms my heart that you interrupted your day to watch the social. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> my wife's like, are you sure you were at the gym? I'm like, yes, the social had a great segment on, <laughs> on st academic streaming. Um, you know, you're a parent too. How did like, this is tricky, right? It's a really, we want high school to be the best and to have kids that are focused and, and be able to capitalize on what they're great at. So they make a great choice later in life with university, college, whatever it's, but every parent gets kind of hot under the collar about it. I understand it too. It's listen, you've got, you've got teenage boys, right? You've yeah, got two of yeah. them. I've got, I've got a teenage girl right now who is in the last year of high school and trying to navigate what university will look like and put so much pressure on herself, Greg, you know, am I getting, are my marks good enough? And has made sure that, you know, all her courses are academic and, you know, nothing is ever good enough to the point where, you know, I, I get a little bit worried. And, and I say, listen, all you can do is try your best. You're also speaking though, Greg, to the daughter of an educator. And my dad was a principal and superintendent and then prof at U of T, but his days as a principal were spent in the former North York. And it, it was a very interesting time because when you talk about streaming, um, you know, in theory, it, it, it sounds fine, right? And, and so you've got skill sets that are being provided for kids and academics and all of these things. I think the hot button issue is who is encouraged to go where? And that that's the big hot button topic. Who's encouraged to maybe not go through the academic streams and and who is and those those are the things where i know listen my my parents emigrated from trinidad way back way back in the 60s uh, but there are so many stories and and this actually happened to my sister 
And this was in kindergarten where, you know, because she had an accent uh, immediately, it was, well, she should probably, you know, uh, not go to grade one. She should probably, you know, stay an extra year in kindergarten. She ended up skipping. So if not, right. So if not for my parents advocating, it starts early, right? So this is the thing. So maybe, maybe just maybe opening it up, uh, maybe opening it up helps, but I will say it also helps when, when parents can advocate for their kids and, and they need to. And again, speaking and, and hearing my dad's point of view through the years, you know, he always said kids cannot navigate this system alone. No, they, they need to have, they need to have parents. They need to have caregivers advocating. For oh, them. and they, they need teachers they connect with and they need Absolutely. teachers that they, they feel that feel approachable, uh, that will pick them up. You know, I had one teacher tell me, he's like, uh, I know the, like I had a bad test result in a history class. And he's like, I know you, I know you, um, you, you, you ask questions in class all the time. You're really active. You didn't study for this. So how do you study for a test? And he showed me how he would study for his own test. It changed that changed everything for when I'm taking, you know, difficult poli sci courses in university. I've never forgotten that teacher. So we all have to have a champion. And I I don't look, you know, I look for red flags on stuff like this. And I think, I don't know, can a test be biased? Can a curriculum be biased? Maybe. But I know that people I know that people can be biased. And I know that even we would tell our kids and you might have told make a good first impression on your teacher those first couple weeks. Like it that stuff just matters. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't be everything, but it's something. It's something. And that teacher that you had that showed you how to study is an excellent teacher. And Greg, we all have those teachers that we just always Mm. remember and never forget because they make an impact. Mine was Miss Kerr, my grade two teacher who really understood that I had a love for books. And so she gave me extra and told me I could be whatever I wanted to be and encouraged me to read everything I could get my hands on. And frankly, that led to a career in journalism because I continued Mm. to read and be curious about you know, the way the world works and people's stories. And we Mm. all have teachers that connect that way. And so much respect for teachers. Shout out to teachers who've been through the front lines, really, through all of this. Well, you won't believe this, but Miss Kerr is joined. Not even for a second. Did you think that I had Miss Kerr on the other (laughs) end? No, not even. (laughs) No. Um, Nice try, though. Yeah, it's a great try. try. It's a great try. Um, You had a a great mandate from the voters of Toronto Centre, 50.35% of the vote. You dealt with a a much closer by-election with, obviously, Annamie Paul as your main challenger. What that that speaks, I think, obviously to the work and we speak of connections, the connection you made to voters in your riding. How would you view the process? And and you knew a lot was going on um, with Annamie, who I know you've said before you have great respect for. How did you view, I, so I suppose, respect. the race and the campaign itself? So let's go back to the by-election. And you're right. Remember, it was pandemic. Um, we were almost it was Yara Sachs in York Center and I our by-elections were seen as almost a litmus test. How do you do this during a pandemic? Mm -hmm. And so how you do it is on the streets, literally talking to people on the streets because there wasn't door knocking going on. You couldn't walk into apartment buildings in Toronto Centre. And I'm thinking of St. Jamestown, which is, you know, one of the densest neighbourhoods in North America. Uh, Not being able to walk into apartment buildings is hard. So you find yourself at transit stops and just on the streets and connecting that way. And if there's a carryover from my previous career, it's that connection part. And I love that. What is your story? Here's mine. This is why I want to serve you. And that was the number one question that I got from so many people, Greg, what are you doing Mm -hmm. here? 
we, didn't we just see on TV last week? What are you doing? <laughs> and really that was like, didn't we just, what are you doing? And what are you doing now? And why are you doing this? And really it was me thinking about serving in a different way. I always thought that I had used my microphone well. And I have to say, particularly on the social, where I could share my life story and my lived experiences and, and my family and challenges and triumphs and all these things. It was just mm. real, real talk. And I started thinking about, well, you know, it's one thing to talk about issues. It's another thing to action them. And George Floyd had been killed. Ahmaud right. Arbery had happened. So many things had happened. And I just thought, you know, if we're going to change a system in any way, we've got to be part of it. And so it I'll tell you, it took a whole dose of courage because it wasn't anything that I'd ever thought about. But I really thought it shows if I can do this, that others can. And also bringing my lived experiences, you know, to the table matters. And so I did it. And this is what I would tell people during the by-election. You're right. It was, it was close. Um, Annie mm. was a newly minted national leader, uh, but we just hit the ground running, connected mm. with as many people as we could, and we continued that. And I think that's why the results were what they were in the general, that we got to know community members. We got to know people, you know, working the front lines. And Toronto Centre is that, and so much of microcosm of what Canada is. It is diverse on every single level. It sure is. Yeah, we, we my kids from Ajax had a soccer game in your riding, and we saw a lot of your signs in the middle of, uh, late in the summer, late August, uh, right before Labor Day. And, uh, and I knew you were making an impact. When people said to you, Marcy, why are we having an election? We just did this. Do we need to have an election right now? I, you know, I voted for you last time, but why are you asking me to vote for you again? What was your most common answer? My most common answer was, these are not things that I decide as an MP, nor do <laughs> other MPs. Really, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't have the power to do that, but we're here. And here is why I want to continue serving you. Here is what we started and we need to finish. And so then we got into conversation. And then it was, it was a great, great, there were great conversations about what mattered, you know, and the things that I heard at the door. I've got, you know, the largest LGBTQ2S community in the country, in the village. I have, you know, people working the front lines. I think about St. Jamestown and Moss Park, you know, and, and Regent Park, where, you know, people who serve others, be it in medical professions. Uh, be it, you know, teachers, be it retail, transit workers mm. reside in my riding. So being able to say thank you to them and understanding the challenges that they face and, and where the gaps are so that I can bring that information back and we can make some change. You have been appointed as Minister for Women, Gender Equality and Youth. Um, we've talked on this show about the she session that the pandemic has brought on. Uh, we've talked about equal pay for equal work. Um, there's there's a lot on your platform. I'm sure you want to accomplish. What are some of the big bullet points that, that you want our listeners to know about? So I'm just back from Halifax, literally just landed um, uh, last night. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, uh, there's, there's much to be learned with regards to this. So in meeting with the Mi'kmaq Friendship Center, and I have a very large urban uh, Indigenous population and, and frankly, young urban Indigenous population and many street-involved um, uh, people in my riding. 
And it was so interesting to learn in talking to Pam at, at the Mi'kmaq Friendship Center about gender-based violence. And we talked about the numbers that we don't see. She said, you know, Marcy, uh, there's something about representation. And when you have a story to share, when you have been hurt, you want to go to someone, frankly, that is your lived experience, that maybe looks like you. And so she talked about seeing the rise in numbers because, Greg, we told everybody to stay home. And home is not a safe place for everyone. We Correct. said, everybody stay home during this pandemic. And then all of a sudden, you know, women are with their abusers. Children who have been abused at home have to stay home. And so really learned about the importance of representation and making sure that our counselors, the places that people go to, my goodness, um, met amazing people mm. at an agency called Shelter Movers as well that literally will move women away from abusive homes into a shelter or into a home that is safe. I mean, these are, the, these are the stories on the front lines. And on top of that, men. Talked a lot about how we're not including boys and men as much as I personally like to and will in this conversation. Why is this happening? This is an equation. You know, are we, are we failing in some way, our boys and our men? And including them in the conversation including them in sometimes the traumatic conversations, because we know those who abuse, who were abused, abuse. So all of these, and then, and then the youth as well, mm -hmm. um, and mentorship programs and how much that means when kids are told at a very young age, you can, you can do what I'm doing, or you can, you can do this. Because like the teacher that you talked about that encouraged you, it matters to get that encouragement. It matters for kids to see someone doing something that they deem successful. Yeah. And I, I'm so glad that you want men at the table because I think men can Absolutely. adapt and evolve and change. We talk about changing language. They can change behavior. These aren't these aren't lifelong. Uh, you're not hardwired um, to be in toxic relationships. You're not hardwired to speak to people a certain way. All that gets adapted. And it's, we all know this. It's learned behavior from our original household to a great extent. I know you got to run. Right. I hope we get to chat again really soon. I always enjoy our conversations and congratulations on being back in Ottawa. Oh, Greg, thank you so much. Please invite me back anytime. I love this. Thanks so much. Have a good weekend. You too. Take care. Okay, so we mentioned this Western University policy. I went to Western. I uh, had a great time there. Four years. Okay, four and a half years. Kind of just hung out there. Took a couple extra politics courses. Needed to firm up. Firm up my volunteer game at the uh, campus radio station. And writing for the Gazette, I wrote like music and entertainment stuff, got to interview like Oasis and Simple Minds in those uh, mid 90s days. Oh, my gosh. Really fun. But this policy is a weird one. Um, and I don't I don't blame students for being against it. Um, I think there's criticism coming from the community. Friend of mine in London writes. I asked him about it yesterday. He texts me back. Everything about it is lame and classic Western. That's not an actual. That's not the name of the school. 
it's actually still Western University. It's not classic Western. The system, he put in system in quotes, is ridiculous and pointless, which makes the -the over-the-top reaction from all corners equally ridiculous. So not great. And so sometimes a policy isn't the right policy. But then when the policy gets explained by the policymakers, it makes it even worse. Uh, I want to bring on our next guest. She's a fourth year Western uh, U student. Uh, and her name is Bray Clement. It's great to have you on, uh, Bray. It's it's uh, it's Greg Brady. It's uh, thank you for getting up early for joining me. Yeah, no problem. How are you today? I'm really good. I'm really good. When you first heard of this, um, and it's been I know it's been a difficult fall. There's been a lot of not great stuff happening, to be honest, on campus from oh, September yeah. <laughs> on. Um, so when you hear about this policy, are are you absolutely befuddled as to as to who this is for and why they would do it? Like I honestly want it to try to believe like okay this is for the best and just for the students this is for us like this is good right but every time I read it I was like it just doesn't seem like they really thought it through I really think it's actually kind of tone deaf to the situation because I don't think it's helping anybody walking around with their student card open with their student name their student number even their faculty on them everywhere they go on campus. I just, it doesn't seem safe, especially when we've had, um, recently there was this one guy that kept on stalking girls on campus and wouldn't listen. He got arrested eight different times and he's still out right now. And I just think it's, it's silly. And it's something, it's personal information that I don't think everybody should, you know, be able to see, especially it's the student number because mm-hmm. someone gets your student number, they have access to a lot of different things on campus that are supposed to be just for you. Yeah, our justice system sucks, but you and I could talk about that over a coffee for 20 minutes about that how a guy sh- who's doing that eight times shouldn't be uh, getting a chance to do it a ninth time. Are students actually wearing them, though? How many are, I won't say complying, because it, it is meant to be voluntary, but are some students doing this? Um, I've seen a few, but I've noticed a lot are purposely like turning the card around or they're actually hiding it. Mm-hmm. Like in their pocket, like they, it's a specific lanyard, right? So you can see who has it and who doesn't. But everybody is trying their best not to show it. And honestly, I've only seen very few people actually get the lanyards. I don't think a lot of people approve of it. And I don't think a lot of people support it. And I've, like, I was a part of the sexual violence walkout that happened after a week. That's right. Yeah. And, I have the big uh, group chat because I was one of the people who helped uh, organize it. And pretty much everybody in that group chat is like, this is stupid. This doesn't make sense. And they don't want the ability to have their name out for random people to start calling their names or getting their attention. We don't want random people we don't know to have more access to us. Because let's be real. If you have someone's like, first and last name, you can easily find their Facebook, their Instagram, and you can find everything about them online. And I just, in my humble opinion, I don't think Western was really thinking this through. And I don't think it's making the campus safer. I think Mm. it's actually making a little more dangerous if more people actually follow it. Mm. Bray Clement, our guest uh, on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, When I went to school, so I went uh, just as the internet was starting, but we had something called a student directory. So you'd get a paper, like a book, and you'd pick it up. And I guess everybody submitted 
which is strange to think about now, and maybe it is deemed as more a security risk. You, your first name, your address, and yeah, your home phone number was in that directory. But we found that at the time. Um, I wouldn't. I would say innocent and helpful because somebody you'd be working on a project with somebody and say, "Look me up in the directory." Okay, I will. Uh, call my friend and see if he wants to join our intramural team. Okay, I'll look it up. And even I will say, because this happens at university, men and women, um, you know, are are interested in each other and pursue each other. I met a girl in a class once, and and she said, "My name is Flora. Look me up in the directory." And I'm like, "Damn it, she didn't leave me a last name." So you're you're pawing through the directory looking because she told you to call her. Like, just, what page? What page? Yeah, know, exactly. Exactly. So these things are like they were beneficial tools at the time. I just wonder we've gone completely the other way. And you bring up social media to where it's really hard to be anonymous now. It's really hard. That innocence of thinking, OK, I can make contact with somebody and reach out is is a bit scarier for people and especially women. I, I'm not who, who's going to who's going to dispute that. Yeah, like I feel like this is going to sound a little silly, but. I remember there was this particular guy that I thought was really cute. Found out his first name. I told my friend just like, oh, yeah, his name is Brad. And literally within like 10 minutes, she found his Instagram, his <laughs> Facebook, like everything about this guy. I'm like, you are like working for the FBI or something. Like, what the hell's going on? And that was just with his first name. So for me, I'm like, okay, if you have your first name, your last name, and your student number, someone can really find out who you are and find out where you are. And I do believe there are going to be people who are going to use that to their advantage with bad intentions behind it. Right. So, like so that happens anyway, without the land, that happens anyway, without the lanyard. Um, so won't most people look like, would the university have people who would stop somebody not wearing a lanyard? I mean, it's hard to believe because that's that we would deem that as carding and we would deem that as really, really problematic. I mean, that that's that's a really problematic thing for campus police to start randomly stopping people. Yeah, I read the article and at the end of it, it said something like people would be able to come and stop you and ask you where your card is. And if you didn't like they would be like, oh, it's okay for now. But make sure you keep like you wear it next time you're on campus. I think a better solution would be um, what they did in the summer where you need your student card to get access to the buildings where you just tap it outside and then you could go in. Like, I think that's a much better solution than just carrying it around everywhere. I don't know. I just seem. I think you're right. I think you're right. Our, our residences, <laughs> we were just talking about residences because I, I lived off campus from. I was a I was a townie, so I lived on a street on Piccadilly Street in first year, so I didn't live in a residence, but. But you had you could just walk in right up into a residence and go and knock on your friend's door and go, are you ready to go out or not? Can can kids yeah. still do that? No, they're not supposed to be able to do that. I'm pretty sure that it needs card access, but also their um, resident attendants literally check every single person that walks in. So that's a good thing. House. Yeah, I, I think. Um, I, I want to ask you about this, about where it's all gone. And I worry it, it's gotten lost in the news cycle. Maybe it hasn't in London and the Gazette or the Free Press. But all these multiple reports, uh, Brie, about uh, on social media about students being drugged and assaulted. Police said they're looking for evidence. And this was all at Medway Sydenham Hall, which are for people who don't know, right next to each other. When you yeah. turn down the main drive of the campus, I know it really well. Do is there more known about this? I just I haven't read enough about the investigation, about anybody being arrested, where it stands. The, it, where is it? Okay, um, 
of course, I have my personal opinion on this. Yeah. But um, also, I know what's being said about the situation. And I think it's actually quite sad how the situation just like, I feel like, okay, when we found out about what happened over a week, everybody was getting together and everybody was, okay, let's do this walkout. We're going to be supportive. And then I remember the week after, it was as if the tone on campus changed where people were making fun of it. Like, I still remember, like, I would be on campus and guys would be joking, like, oh, I don't feel safe at night. Can you walk me home? And I'm like, dude, like, there's real situations happening right now that's not, like, the best kind of jokes to make. Yeah. And then, of course, um, I found out from an employee of Western, finding out who the person was, there's actually it's supposedly one person that did all the drugging and Western decided not to do anything about it besides move um, his residence and not actually kick him out. And the reason why I've been told they're not kicking him out is because he comes from a very well-off family and there'd be a lot of repercussions from kicking him out of the university, even though Mm. they found out he was the one that drugged over like, 30 people. But London, London police, uh, London police aren't in this mix as well. Like when they hear that information, aren't they like, well, if the campus won't do something, we will like a crime's a crime, right? The issue with uh, law enforcement, especially when it comes to sexual violence, it's a very, like he said, she said, and a lot of times what I've noticed, cause I've uh, personally been a victim of sexual violence, the way they treat these mm. horrific and atrocious acts, as like the boogeyman and nobody wants to face the boogeyman that's in the dark. So they kind of, they rather Mm. pretend it's not there or they try to minimize the problem. So it doesn't look as bad. I haven't heard much of what London police are doing about it. To be honest, Mm. it feels like it was a big thing for like two weeks. And then all of a sudden it was brushed under the rug and no one was talking about it. No one was really caring about it. And um, I think just the conversation around sexual violence has to be changed because it's not a boogeyman. It's they're real people doing these monstrous acts and they need to face consequences. Yeah. There have, there has to be accountability, uh, criminal and, and, and otherwise about it. I'm fresh out of time. I love talking with you. You're a great guest. I, I hope we could do it again about important issues like this. And thanks for weighing in on the lanyard. Uh, you're welcome here anytime. I really appreciate it. Have a great weekend. You too. Take care. You got it. Uh, Bray Clement from uh, Western university. Sabrina Nanji, uh, of course, uh, is on our show on a pretty frequent basis from QP Observer. And it's great to have you in. Thanks very much for making the time. Hi, Greg. What's going down with you? We haven't talked in a while. Yeah, um, exciting week at at Queens Park, as usual. Um, Lots of talk about highways, uh, a a new political (laughs) party forming, you know, uh, lots of questions about child care. It's keeping us on our toes at Queen's Fire. Never stops, never stops. Um, so, uh, G. Lamardo, I think this is really interesting, isn't it? There was, uh, we've talked about people sort of breaking the code of, of you know, self-party criticism, but she's an optometrist, and, and I thought that was interesting. She went there yesterday and was quite critical to me. I didn't name the health minister by name, Christine Elliott, but is basically like unprepared was a was a phrase she used. That's, that's kind of harsh for party party within party uh, politics, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned Gila Marta. She's, she's the MPP for Thornhill. Um, you know, no love lost at this point between her and her party for a lot of reasons. But right now, yeah, she's making a really public statement, um, taking this stance against her, her lunchmates, um, kind of a, a, a bit of a surprising move, definitely unorthodox. Um, and, and you're right, she's, she's an optometrist herself, and she's saying that this is kind of putting her in a bit of an awkward position here um, because she doesn't really agree with how the government is, is handling it. Um, and we obviously know that the government is right now in this fee dispute with eye doctors um, over OHIP-funded eye exams, and right now um, seniors and, and children, some, some people who you know, need these things the most, they're, they're not getting it because of this standoff. Um, and, and here we have an MPP basically calling out the health ministry, saying that they had an opportunity to um, you know, work with the uh, Optometrist Association, which is who they're negotiating with, work with them before all of this kind of you know, fell apart, uh, come up with you know, a study on, on what could be good uh, and fair in terms of you know, how much they're offering. Um, and and you know, according to this MVP, the government turned it down, and she's saying that was obviously uh, you know, left them really unprepared for, for what's happening now. Uh, you know, harsh words. Uh, the government says that, that that's, you know, it would have been inappropriate. They're willing to discuss you know, different funding options. They're not going to write a blank check. Um, but yeah, definitely a little bit of an awkward moment uh, within caucus here. You wrote a great piece on uh, QPobserver.com about uh, Jill Marto and, and basically the year that's been for her. She was not allowed to run again for the PCs. They're going for another candidate. She got stripped of her role as a parliamentary assistant. Um, and some people end up going quietly. She isn't. Um, she accused Paul Calandra of bullying in a letter to caucus. So it, it, she's not planning on crossing the aisle. I know you noted that in the story, but maybe she's being a lot louder than some of her colleagues expected six months ago when this started to unravel. Yeah, I mean, take all of this, uh, you know, outspokenness from from Martel with a bit of a you know grain of salt, because there is, you know, she is kind of beefing with her own party for a lot of reasons. She decided to throw her hat in the federal ring to replace Peter Kent. Um, but as we know, she, she was not successful. And, and now uh, the, 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 that riding has elected conservative MP Melissa Lanceman. Um, and that kind of created a bit of a risk. There were a lot of people I had heard in the premier's office, you know, unofficially supporting Lanceman. Um, she has a lot of allies. You know, she's a, a longtime, um, you know, a Ford operative. And so that, that part wasn't really surprising, I guess, from Martel's perspective. She felt a little elbowed out. And, you know, they did go to her uh, and say, you know, uh, if you want to run federally, you, you can't run for us again provincially. Uh, but, you know, you can stick around. You were elected under our banner. You can stick around until June. But, you know, after that, uh, we're going to find someone else to hopefully replace you. Um, and, and yeah, she, she actually has not even shown up in, in the House in the last year because there's just been a lot of, um, I guess you could say maybe in the weeds drama happening, you know, uh, little things that that Marta tells me you know have added up and, and in her view it's it's bullying she feels that like she's being singled out you know her her desk getting moved her office space getting moved without um, her being informed you know some some of her caucus mates don't really agree they say that you know they think she's checked out but it is kind of surprising that she's sticking around with the Tories and not crossing the aisle um, mm-hmm. I guess one theory might be that they are they have lost you know seven MPPs lately uh, over the years you know defected or, or booted for various reasons we had a couple of MPPs go over vaccination status. Um, and so, you know, they, they still have a healthy majority, but they probably don't want, you know, to cut it any closer for votes coming up. You wrote about uh, the Ontario First Party. Tell our listeners what that is. Um, I'm sure you're like me, like there's always that hesitancy to give, um, you know, Randy Hill your oxygen. But but a party is a party. What's happening here? 
Yeah, so um, MVP Randy Hillier, I mean, he's been censured, uh, you know, widely, even by his own fellow MPPs in the legislature uh, for some of, you know, the, the COVID misinformation and, and his anti-lockdown stance that he's been taking. Um, but, but you know, there's no denying that there are folks behind him right now and that he is uh, starting his own political party, kind of, you know, riding some of the coattails of the, the People's Party of Canada, which, you know, they did not elect uh, someone to the House of Commons in the last federal election, but they, you know, got a, a significant share of the, of the vote. And I think mm. that, you know, th- they want to capitalize on that a little bit in Ontario. And so Randy Hillier has said that he's kind of creating this spinoff party here um, and he'll be the leader of it, a provincial party called the Ontario First Party. Uh, he, he's kind of being a bit quiet about it. And, you know, it's still very early days. There's a long way to go. He needs to get signatures from eligible voters, uh, you know, who, who endorse him. That all needs to be checked out with Elections Ontario. So it's very early days, but he's out there. He's collecting signatures um, and he's he's planning to, you know, be on the ticket in, in June 2022. I got about a minute, but I would guess that not much can unify um, Doug Ford, Andrea Horvath, and Stephen Del Duca, but I would guess that they would hope not to have to debate with Randy. I would guess they would not have to make campaign appearances in the spring. We don't know how many of those there are going to be, but this can't be something any of them uh, want to deal with, not because they're afraid of his popularity, but just it legitimizes some some very, you know, to be honest, very terrible and and dangerous opinions. Yeah, and, and I think you know even us uh, reporters are a little hesitant to give you know him him airtime um, in this case. But I think yeah, definitely we we have seen the all the leaders at Queens Park united against some of his actions of late, and and they did that with a motion at Queens Park, you know, yeah. condemning him and saying this is not okay, uh, we're not okay with it, and um, you know that's symbolic. It, it means something. Always enjoy your stuff. QPObserver.com. Sabrina Nanji. Have a great weekend. Thanks for the time today. Thanks, Greg. I want to bring on uh, biostatistician uh, Ryan Imgren. You can follow him on Twitter at Imgren. Uh, It's great to have you on. I want to talk COVID with you, but you and I uh, were talking yesterday about the uh, de-streaming for grade nine students. Um, You've got a kid going into high school next year. So do I. So this would have been the time, right, to talk about academic and applied. You can speak to this being a high school teacher. Do you like the idea of de-streaming grade nine? It's funny, I can also speak to it as a former student myself. In fact, when I entered high school in 1993, not to age myself, that was the first year that they actually tried de-streaming here in Ontario. And it's interesting because it just simply didn't work. What we had is we had a whole bunch of grade nine classes that were filled with, you know, 30, 34 kids. It was basically almost like a glorified grade eight. Um, And we were all learning something that was a balance between a little bit more difficult than the applied program, a little bit easier than the academic program. It maybe benefited the people in the middle, but it didn't benefit anyone on any end of that spectrum. And this is to me about um, not the not testing, not curriculum. I do not believe testing can be racially biased. I don't believe curriculum can be racially biased, but there is there are always stories, um, and especially in the GTA. Um, in in more mixed race areas of problematic scenarios where uh, minority kids are pushed more towards applied courses than academic courses. And and kids can change the game and change the narrative on their own as they go through high school. So that's to me, you're, you're sort of compromising the classroom, making making things easier for some kids, harder for other kids. 
And you're not you're not actually getting to the root of the problem, which is we should be giving these kids the best advice based on their abilities. And that's exactly it. And I think we're actually hurting them even more by, you know, shoving students who may be justified going into applied at the time, because we can't forget there will be students who, you know, have been with an elementary teacher um, for their entire grade eight year, who knows them very well, who knows what mm -hmm. level, um, you know, they would be best able to handle when they get to high school. Um, and then, you know, for some of those students, it's just a like total disservice to shove them into a classroom that's just way too large. This is a great idea if it was also accompanied by a solid curriculum and if it was also accompanied by smaller class sizes. It does not work unless you have smaller class sizes with this as well. It's just simply a game, I think, to almost save money by making much larger classes, but saying we're doing so because of equity, because of other reasons. It almost it, it eliminates options as well. Everyone. And, and again, it's the crux of the issue is if we all have different learning levels, I, I know there were subjects I knew I could get a great mark in and I knew there were subjects I was going to struggle in. So better get the better to have the option instead of throwing everyone into the same box and making them collectively learn at one level. 100%. And I think, you know, something too, which we should know about schools is that even after grade nine, if someone was stuck into the wrong stream, there's courses which they can take to jump from applied to academic, they can move from academic to applied, um, you know, and if there wasn't a course available, they're able to override that course and to like, place a student into the proper um, the grouping next year. I've seen it done both sides. I've seen academic students become applied, applied students become academic. It's happened a lot and it's not the easiest transition, but it is something which is there, which is available for students so that whatever they do mm -hmm. in the grade nine is not the path for the rest of their lives. Ryan Imgrin, our guest, Toronto Today. We visit with him every Friday at 7.30. Uh, let's get to some of the COVID data. I'll talk about the science table in a little bit. Um, Dr. Peter Uni's comments on Sunday, maybe Monday morning, got a lot of attention. I, uh, you know, I got a lot of respect for this man. I think he's fought the good fight a lot of times. I think there's, like anything else, like like there's no black and white here. There's a lot of gray area. I, I want, would point out to Dr. Uni um, that most of the uptick in cases are rural and smaller towns. Right now, it's not the big cities. The positivity rates are low also in Toronto, Ham uh, Ottawa, Hamilton. And ICUs right now, Ryan, aren't coupling up with cases. I also think there's just not a lot of explanation. When you get something wrong, I think you say it. Um, I try and do the same. There's never been an explanation as to why the science table was so off track with their predictions in September. When you hear Dr. Uni's warnings, what what was your reaction to it? Do you think some of what I think, or am I off track? No, I think you're on track with that. I think you know this is something now where we need to respond on a public health region basis. We can't be responding as a whole entire province. Um, and once again, I think we need to learn from what some areas are doing. And it's something that here in Ontario, we have failed to learn from all along. Mm -hmm. um, early on in the like pandemic, we could see what would happen if a region was going up in cases and they went from the green to the yellow zone. And we should have sat back at the time and said, okay, does this work? If so, that's great. We can now place these other zones with similar case counts into that exact same color-coded region, and we can see what happens. And on, on that front, for instance, right now, we're seeing Sudbury with the most cases here in Ontario. We can now see what interventions they do. We can see what impact it has on the cases there. 
And we can then do those interventions in other areas when they get to their case level. We don't need to meet, make these like, provincial responses anymore, um, especially when vaccination rates vary so much from one public health unit to the next. And and you, where you are in Sudbury, public health locally, did what, what did they do to respond? And I agree with you. We can only do this the rest of the way on a regional approach. People have stopped listening to a lot of public health recommendations. I didn't make that happen. You didn't make that happen. But we're just stating a fact here. They are done with listening because they felt misled a few times. But public health did something good where you live. What did they do? Yeah. So actually, one thing which they did is they implemented mandatory vaccinations. In, in fact, that starts November 15th um, for all people doing organized activities 12 and up. Now, this is interesting because it's something that other public health units have already done. We mm -hmm. were a little bit slow to the game in order to implement something like that. Um, the, the other thing which was done is it's mandatory isolation, whether vaccinated or not, for those that are close contacts of like cases. And that certainly makes sense in an in, in area where you have 5% positivity. So it's not a lot of huge interventions. And then I think they also rolled back the capacity to previous levels as well. Um, so it's not huge, huge interventions. It's nothing, you know, like, you know, some of those former lockdowns, which we had anything else like that. It's small interventions, but we can see what impact they have on cases. And if they have an impact on cases, it's something which we can recommend to other areas when, when and if they start to struggle too. I know uh, Toronto stepped out and, and announced a vaccine campaign, and, and I think that's great. I think they're giving options. They're doing big clinics, small clinics. They're going to hopefully get, you know, five to 11 vaccines into doctors and pediatricians offices. I'm all for it. I, I've been on record. I would vaccinate a healthy five or six year old son or daughter of my own if I had one. I'm not for mandating them in elementary schools at that age. Dr. Davila in Toronto noted this. And uh, and this is an exact quote. Some five to 11 year olds have become very sick and required hospitalization. And I, I reached out to so many people. You're one of the people I reached out to. But I got this from a guy working in a covid ward. Um, I'm not buying it. That's not what we're seeing. I see somebody uh, also denote that there's there's no mention of a denominator. There's no mention of pre-existing conditions. I know that's tricky territory for some to talk about that. But we're talking about 80 year olds with pre-existing conditions and comorbidities. I don't know why a parent wouldn't want to feel safer thinking my seven-year-old's not going to drop dead from COVID if they're perfectly healthy. How do you view messaging like that when it, it just feels like it's more of a scare tactic than the practicality of why you might want to get it? Yeah, you're right. I don't buy it either. I think it's really, really bad messaging. And it's sort of along the lines from what we've been seeing from a lot of public health units throughout this pandemic, just really bad messaging um, where they know what the outcome is, but they don't know how to get there. If you want to get five to 11 year olds vaccinated, there's, you know, things which you can say to people and to bring up the rare time that five to 11 year olds are actually hospitalized is not the way to get people to buy into vaccinations. Um, but but if we mention that if we vaccinate five to 11 year olds, we may be able to keep schools open longer. Right. We can slow transmission to other age groups where we do see negative effects of the COVID-19, which are much more profound from a health capacity standpoint. That's what we need to say to people. We don't need to dwell on hospitalization for the, the younger population, which isn't non-existent. 
but it's it, it's in very very small numbers and not the way to sell vaccines to people. And and I've I've got a friend of mine who's got a, a daughter who's seven and she's been prone to ear infections, prone to sore throats, prone to stuffed up noses, barking like a seal. And I said to this guy, y- you should be first in line. Of course you should, because he's willing to be honest and talk frankly about a condition uh, and, and a circumstance that just not every parent sees. And a lot of trips to the emergency rooms and walk-in clinics, that's what he deals with. But not every parent does. Right. And you can also say in, in you know, situations like that, if, you know, a like, the child is actually prone to the getting sick. Yeah. They may miss school because they're prone to getting sick. Also, if there's someone in their class who gets COVID-19 and we separate students according to vaccination status, it may mean less missed school for that child. So even on an individual basis, a child who gets sick more often wouldn't have to miss school when in, inevitably there's a case maybe in mm. their school, their classroom, or anything else like that. So I think we also need to have those separate isolation strategies for the younger population based on vaccination status. If we don't have mandates, it's once again a, a way that we can sell it to that population. Yeah, you got to do it practically. You, no one wants to make their kid a statistic, even a positive statistic. There has to be a practical reason. And there are many. There are many to get your kid vaccinated, but you just got to be honest about it. Um, I'm tight for time. I loved having you on. We'll talk next week. Sounds good. Take it easy. See ya. Ryan Imgren, biostatistician, our guest. Really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Have yourself a fantastic mid-November weekend. More mild than usual, that's for sure, wherever you are. Join us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That's the best place to find us. That's how you'll get the podcast the fastest to your phone or your preferred listening device. Have yourself a great weekend. We're back with a live show Monday morning at 530.